Hello and welcome to HipCast, the podcast here to improve hip fracture care. The Australian and New Zealand Hip Fracture Registry would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of this land that we are based on, and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Good day everyone, uh, my name is Maria Fiataroni singh I'm a geriatrician working at the University of Sydney and I want to talk today about uh, a project that we did called HipFit, uh, looking at rehabilitation after hip fracture, um, starting with a little bit of context about how the project was developed and then talk also about the future, how we think about uh, hopefully translating this into a wider scope. So just to begin, I think uh, obviously there's a lot of data that's being captured in Australia and New Zealand currently about hip fracture care and recovery. Uh, we're doing very well, I think, in terms of implementing the clinical care pathways in the hospital, which has done um, a very good job at reducing um, in-hospital and, and perioperative mortality and morbidity. One thing that I think is probably still not quite being done at the level that we would like is the integration of geriatric care and orthopedic care, which is probably one of the core pieces of how we think about hip fracture. And the other thing that probably isn't happening quite as much as we would like is thinking about what happens after discharge in terms of the kind of information that people get on prevention of future falls, uh, and in particular, um, the kinds of opportunities that they're given to actually engage with fall prevention and other kinds of rehabilitative strategies. So what we what we do know is that despite all of the incredible advances that have been made in hip fracture care, there still are a substantial portion of people who don't recover or don't recover well. Uh, and at about four months post-op, there's still about uh, 27% of people in Australia who are newly living in aged care or rehabilitation settings who were previously living at home. Uh, And that's something that I think um, all of you will recognize is um, very much a focus of hip fracture recovery. And in fact, when it's been looked at in uh, patient uh, focus groups at Hornsby Hospital, uh, women with osteoporosis, in fact, identified nursing home care as worse than death as an outcome after hip fracture. So clearly, this is one of the goals that we want to focus on. So what does a hip fracture look like? And once we know that, what is it that we do to try and improve these kinds of outcomes? Well, the problem with hip fracture is very much like the blind men examining the elephant story, which you'll all know. And depending on where you sit or where you stand, uh, the creature looks quite different to you. And certainly um, this is an issue because what you see is what you will treat. And as we mentioned, not that many services still include geriatric and orthopedic surgeons. So if you are an orthopedic surgeon um, and you think about hip fracture, what you're actually thinking about primarily, in fact, is the broken bone itself, uh, which is certainly part of the equation. But if you're a geriatrician like myself, um, this is what a hip fracture actually looks like. It looks like a person with a lot of comorbidities, uh, many of them circulating around frailty, which end up resulting in this acute event uh, called a hip fracture that may in fact become a more chronic event. So when I think about hip fracture and try to define it, the way that I want to define it uh, primarily is thinking about it as frailty, a syndrome of frailty, where you have compromised musculoskeletal composition and muscle strength, which predisposes the person to an increased risk of falls and fractures. 
So we did a study a few years ago at three New South Wales hospitals looking at what were the predictors of long-term disability and recurrent injurious falls after somebody had their index hip fracture. And what we found was that, in fact, there were an awful lot of things that predicted bad outcomes, uh, including things like sarcopenia, mobility impairment, malnutrition, cognition uh, disorders, depression, uh, osteoporosis itself, polypharmacy, other nutritional inadequacies, and even inadequate social support. So all of these things together go into the picture of what predicts outcomes after hip fracture. And what we saw in this prospective cohort study called SHIP was that um, compared to pre-fracture levels of uh, disability, at four months after hip fracture, despite um, the best tertiary care hospital uh, acute and rehabilitative care, uh, function was worse at four months than it was pre-fracture. And at 12 months, that was about the same. People didn't continue to get better um, after four months. And when you think about this, if you don't return to your baseline level of function, which was the case in about 75% uh, of individuals, uh, they were still uh, not even back to baseline. Baseline means the next day you fell and broke your hip. So if that's your goal, it's a very, very low bar to get back to baseline. So what we really want to do is think about how can we get people who fracture their hip up to a, a very different bar to be much better than they were at baseline. So based on all of that evidence in the literature and our own prospective cohort study, we designed a study called HipFit, which was done at RPA and, and Balmain Hospitals, where we wanted to see if we could uh, uh, engage people who had just broken their hip, who were very typical hip fracture patients, and give them everything that we could think of that was amenable to intervention that might predict long-term outcomes. So we screened all of the people admitted with either falls or fr hip fracture or pain um, after getting rid of people who were ineligible because they didn't really have a hip fracture or they didn't speak English, about half of the people who had a hip fracture actually agreed to enter our randomized controlled trial. And we followed them for 12 months in the RCT and then for another four years after that with telephone contact. So the control group in this study got usual care, which at the time was an orthogeriatric team at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, uh, followed by six to 12 weeks of physiotherapy, uh, and then whatever their GP wanted to do um, subsequent to that. The eligibility for the trial was uh, the person had to have a surgical repair of a fractured hip. They couldn't be severely cognitively impaired, but they could have certainly mild um, dementia. Uh, they weren't uh, undergoing any kind of a rapidly uh, terminal illness of any sort. Uh, and they needed to speak English. But other than that, any kind of um, uh, comorbidities were acceptable for this cohort. Um, and what did we do? Well, in the intervention group, we actually tried to figure out an intervention that would address all of these remediable components of frailty and hip pressure recovery. So that included actually 13 different intervention arms, which is something only a geriatrician would design. Uh, as you might imagine, but people got whatever they needed. So we screened them for deficiencies, and if they needed that intervention arm, they got it. And the interventions included high-intensity weightlifting exercise, balance training, uh, home evaluation for safety and mobility, uh, hip protectors, calcium, self-efficacy, uh, malnutrition, polypharmacy, vitamin D, depression, uh, visual impairment, cognitive impairment, and social support. And I've arranged these in the order in which uh, deficiencies were noted. And you can see that up at the top, we have the balance and strength training, calcium, self-efficacy, uh, malnutrition, very prevalent. 87% of people were malnourished. 
uh, and down on, and even um, about a third of them were cognitively impaired. So once we screened them, we then gave them treatments for these particular uh, interventions. And the core of the program really was the high intensity weightlifting exercise, seven different exercises done in the uh, physical therapy department at Balmain Hospital, uh, including five lower extremity exercises and two upper body exercises. Uh, typical kind of program, high intensity, we measure how strong they are uh, and have them lift weight, which is about 80% of that and progressively increase the weight over the year as they get stronger. So that was done two days a week over the entire 12 months, starting at about six weeks post-fracture when the bone was healed. The other core part of the <coughs> program was balance training, which was uh, progressive. As soon as they mastered a certain level, it was moved up to a more difficult level uh, and included static and dynamic balance. And this was also done under supervision at Balmain Hospital. So what happened? Our primary outcome was actually nursing home residents. That was the thing which is most feared, more than death itself, by this cohort, apparently. Um, and what we showed was that we were able to reduce uh, nursing home admission by 84%, death by 81%, and what's called poor outcome, the combination of either death or nursing home admission by 85%, which was significantly different than the control group in all cases. Um, when we looked at what it was that was predicting their improvement in, in both ADLs and nursing home utilization, what we found, interestingly enough, was that it was the tricep strength changes, the improvements in tricep strength that predicted their improvements in ADLs and transferring activities. Um, and in terms of nursing home utilization, again, it was ADL improvements, but also vision, six-minute walk distance, and uh, again, tricep strength, not quite significant. So this was a little bit surprising to us. We had expected that lower limb strength, which is what we were focused on, would be the thing that predicted outcomes. But when you think about it, um, if you can't transfer, you can't live at home alone. But you don't need to walk to be able to live at home alone. You simply be able, need to be able to transfer from bed to chair to commode, et cetera. Uh, and so what we found was that when we gave people back this ability to actually use their upper body and help them move around their home environment, we were able to reduce nursing home uh, admission rates very significantly. So the intervention stopped at one year, but we continued to follow people, as I said, over five years. And what we found was that some of the interventions persisted in terms of efficacy. At two years, we still had a, a uh, odds ratio of 0.36, so a 64% reduction in the risk of poor outcome at two years, one year after we had stopped intervening. Um, and that continued on, but not significantly until it tapered off by five years, as you might imagine, most of the people be being between 85 and 95 years of age at that point in time. So a very intensive intervention, uh, very much concordant with a, a uh, comprehensive geriatric assessment and what would be the sequelae of that. And what was different about it is that we applied it very robustly in evidence-based kinds of strategies over the entire 12 months post-hip fracture. So unfortunately, what happens in real life in the community is not quite like hip fit. Um, the kinds of interventions that are given to older people uh, tend to look more like this, uh, where there is um, a very minimal amount of, of weightlifting exercise done. The balance exercises perhaps are not as challenging as they might be. Um, and these kinds of treatment paradigms, which are offered to people, particularly as they get more frail, uh, turn out to not really have any benefit at all when you read the randomized controlled trial literature in terms of very significant clinical outcomes. So the frailer you are, the more important it is that you actually offer something which is really quite robust and evidence-based uh, if you want to use exercise for 
the treatment of this condition. Um, so since that time, we've continued to use this clinically, and there have been um, a little bit of progress made, I think, in terms of getting the message out to GPs that if you want to treat people with hip fracture or with the risk for hip fracture, um, you need to think about it very holistically. And obviously, not all of it is about exercise, but in the part that is about exercise, the kind of exercise that you prescribe um, either to people without osteoporosis, where you're trying to prevent it, uh, is resistance training and balance training. If they already have uh, osteoporosis, again, high intensity resistance training and balance training. Uh, and even after a hip fracture itself, strength training and balance training uh, still remains important. So this is very different than the old kinds of guidelines. In fact, the previous edition of this particular guideline for GPs uh, talked about weight-bearing exercise or walking. And we know now from randomized controlled trials that in fact, walking by itself increases the risk of osteoporotic fracture. So it's never something that we would recommend in somebody who either has frailty uh, or recurrent falls or has osteoporosis or in fact may have all three of those conditions. So a very different paradigm in terms of exercise. And the other thing that we know about exercise is that it also affects those other components of frailty that are quite important. Exercise improves depression, it improves cognition, it improves appetite and protein retention. Um, it also can help with um, reducing polypharmacy by substituting for hazardous drugs like benzodiazepines, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and using exercise instead as a treatment for those neuropsychological conditions. So in many, many ways, exercise has a much broader scope of action than we have previously thought about it being a treatment for bone itself. So we do have translational plans in place um, attempting to uh, recreate what we did in HIPAA in a bit of a uh, more modern take with, with a bit more um, focus on participants and carers themselves carrying out some of the interventions, but still focusing on the high intensity strength training and balance training as the core of the treatment, which does require uh, supervision, particularly in the beginning. It does require equipment uh, because you can't really give the kinds of high intensity exercise that you'd like to do, um, except uh, in uh, unusual cases where people are very, very um, compliant with home-based exercise and being able to use relatively, uh, for them, heavy weights. And that's something that's quite difficult to achieve uh, in frail adults. So supervised exercise, even if it's only two days a week, um, I think is the way that we need to think about treating this particular um, health problem. And the overall message really is that if, if we really want to reduce the long-term morbidity and mortality after hip fracture, it requires a complete paradigm shift where what we're doing is saying the modifiable uh, frailty components themselves, in particular, sarcopenia and malnutrition, should be the primary focus of long-term care in this particular cohort. Acutely, we obviously have to fix the broken bone. We have to have all of the, the clinical care pathways to reduce perioperative morbidity and mortality. That has to happen. But once we get beyond that perioperative phase, well, then the focus really needs to shift a little bit from the bone to all of the surrounding tissues and surrounding problems that actually led this person to fall and break their bone. So that's really the paradigm shift that I think will bring hip fracture um, uh, in the future into the center of geriatric care and better long-term outcomes. Thank you. 
Find the lecture version of this talk at www.anzhfr.org and stay tuned for further HIPCAST episodes.